Well, good morning, New Life. Good morning to those of you watching online. Uh, we're glad that you decided to worship with us this morning. Uh, happy Labor Day weekend, uh, even if it is a wet weekend. I uh, hope that you um, are enjoying uh, the time, uh, not only of worship here this morning, but time with family uh, during the, this special weekend. Um, kind of holding my breath, waiting uh, to find out whether or not we'll have that parade tomorrow or not. Uh, after all the work that's gone into it, um, we still have a little bit more decorating to do that um, will probably need to be done today sometime, um, but um, I, I'm just hoping the weather will will cooperate with us, that it won't rain, but it's in the Lord's hands. So um, if you're uh, pr- planning on coming out, get a spot early because it usually fills up pretty uh, much through the streets of Canal Winchester. Uh, the route is pretty simple. It starts from uh, the school, goes into the heart of downtown, kind of goes around the new uh, city offices building and straight down Waterloo and and uh, concludes near the pool. So that's what's going on on tomorrow, uh, weather permitting. This morning, uh, we're going to be continuing our study in the book of John. And I hope you brought your Bibles with you here this morning. The late pastor and author A.W. Tozer wrote once that if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today... 95% of what we do would go on, and nobody would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop, and everybody would know the difference. Now, many Christians nod their head in agreement but nobody wants to admit that it's true for their church. It's an interesting case that when you mention a statistic like that, people go, yeah, yeah, I see it. That's true. Yeah, but not of our church. I read recently um, about uh, a Chinese Christian who visited several churches in the United States, and after his visit, he was asked what he thought of American spirituality. His response was quite informative. He says, I am amazed at how much the church in America can accomplish without the Holy Spirit. I think it's painfully clear to anybody who has observed um, Christianity here in the United States that we need a better understanding of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. We can't continue to do things in our own strength, in our own flesh. And a few weeks ago, I I preached a message out of John 14 on the identity of the Holy Spirit. Uh, This morning, we're going to focus on the work of the Holy Spirit. So in an attempt for us to be able to understand better who the Holy Spirit is and what his ministry is all about, that's what we're going to do here this morning. So let us, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him for help in this regard. Holy Spirit, we ask that this morning that you would do one of the things that you were sent to do. And that is to guide us into all the truth. 
Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be our teacher and our guide, that we would learn not only more about you, but more about our Savior. Uh, Father, I, I pray that you would just give us attentive hearts. Lord Jesus, we pray that as we listen to you, that it would be an act of worship as we give you our attention, that we might learn from you, that we might become more like you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. So in chapter 15 through um, chapter 16 of, in verse 4, we, we learned of the importance of abiding in Christ and bearing spiritual fruit. We also learned that there's a temptation that we face, and, and that is that we can tend to shrink back uh, from our faith. We can shrink from Christ. We can compromise our faith. But fortunately, Jesus said that he would send a helper, the spirit of truth, who would help us that he would help us to stand firm and that he would enable us um, to bear witness to Jesus. This morning, we're going to see that to live the Christian life and to fulfill the mission that Jesus has given us, we need the Holy Spirit. And I would underscore the word need there. It's not an option. We, we must have the Holy Spirit leading us, guiding us. And we'll, we'll talk about that as we get going. So in the first, five, uh, first 11 verses uh, that we're going to cover this morning, uh, verse 5 through verse 15, Jesus reveals the prerequisite of the Spirit's coming, for his coming, as well as the purpose for his coming. He goes into greater detail here than we have seen previously about the purpose for his coming. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to John chapter 16. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version, starting there in verse 5. Jesus says, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So if you look there at verse 5, what you see is that Jesus gives his disciples a gentle rebuke in that statement that none of you asks me, uh, where are you going? Actually, Peter asked this question back in chapter 13. And in chapter 14, Thomas uh, kind of asked it too when he said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? So why would Jesus say this? Well, the first clue is that the word ask is in the present tense. So Jesus is, in effect, saying um, to them, you know, uh, why are none of you asking me now, where are you going? The other clue here is to, to see the context, because I think the context basically reveals to us that the disciples were filled with sorrow. They were feeling deep pain. They were afflicted. They are grief-stricken. Why? Why? Because they don't want Jesus to go away. 
they would prefer to have Jesus' physical presence with them continually. So that's what their, their, their eyes are focused on. That's where their heart is. They didn't even think to ask Jesus, how does he feel about the situation? I mean, after all, it does involve him too. He's the one that will be going away. But all they could think about was how it affected them. And more importantly, they, they didn't understand how this all fit in to God's redemptive plan. So Jesus being the gentle shepherd that he is, assures them, it is to your advantage that I go away. So now he's trying to address their sorrow. And he says, it is to your advantage that I go away, meaning it's in your best interest that I leave. What? In our best interest? How can that be? How can this be a good thing, Jesus? I'm sure the, the disciples would have argued with Jesus if they could. They would, have, they would have begged him, pleaded with him to stay. But I think they knew that his course was set. This is what was going to happen, what Jesus was going to do. They didn't realize that Jesus actually wanted to have an even closer relationship with them than they could ever imagine. All they could see was Jesus before them. And they loved him. And this was a commendable thing. You know, on one hand, it's a commendable thing that, that they're feeling this grief, this sorrow over the prospect of not seeing their Lord and Savior again. But at the same time, on the other hand, it reveals that they didn't see the big picture. They didn't understand the big picture. So Jesus tells them, it's to your advantage that I go away. Now, Jesus had already promised them that he would not leave them as orphans, remember? He said, I will send a helper to you who will be with you forever. And we talked about that at great length a few weeks ago when we were talking about the identity of the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that we said was the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. So listen to what Jesus is saying and what he means when he says, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The spirit of Christ, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit will come as a result of Jesus ascending to the Father. That was the only way that the Spirit could come. And what is so interesting here is, is that when the Holy Spirit comes, he would not only be with them, but he would be in them forever. Not just during their earthly life, but forever. You see, in Jesus' incarnate state, he could only be with his disciples, but soon he would be in them. In his incarnate state, he could only be in one place at one time. But when the Spirit comes, he will be everywhere as he is within his people who are carrying out his mission in the world. Now, there are many other reasons why it was advantageous to the disciples for Jesus to go away, including the Spirit's empowerment uh, for service. 
and Jesus' intercessory ministry in heaven. When Jesus ascended to the Father, we're told that we now have an advocate with the Father, one who intercedes for us on our behalf. Those are just a couple of the things that make it advantageous, not only for his disciples, but for us as well. But what I want to do this morning is I want to focus on the purposes that are listed in the remaining verses before us this morning. And what is really important as we look at verses 8 through 15 is to realize that the Spirit has been sent to the church, not to the world. We see that clearly in verse 7. Jesus is sending the helper to his disciples now, this doesn't mean that the world won't benefit from the Holy Spirit being in the world, because it does. But what it does mean is that the Holy Spirit ministers to the world in and through the church. That's how it's done. It's, you know, sometimes we have this weird kind of idea of the Holy Spirit just kind of like floating around and just kind of zapping people, you know, with like fairy dust or whatever, you know. To, that's not, he works in and through the church. So let's talk about the purpose for the Spirit's coming. Let's look at verse 8 and following. It says, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So the first purpose that we're given here in this text is that the Holy Spirit is coming to convict sinners. You see that? He will convict the world. Now, the word convict there in the Greek, it's a legal term that means to show or to prove to be guilty. To prove to be guilty. It means to refute or expose, bring to light, or convince of the truth. Convince somebody of the truth. So, in a sense, what we're seeing is that the world is on trial. We are the witnesses the Holy Spirit is the prosecuting attorney. And it's his job to convict the world. But the goal of conviction in this case is not condemnation, it's salvation. Conviction is a necessary prerequisite to salvation. It's a prerequisite to repentance and faith. And so that is the primary role of the Holy Spirit, or one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit. So here's an interesting question. If the Holy Spirit was sent to the church, how then does he convict the world? Simple answer, through us. Through us. Through the church, through the ministry of the church. And I'm, I'm not just talking about some guy getting up on Sunday morning and preaching a gospel and as people come in from off the street. That rarely happens. We are the instruments that God uses to call people to himself. The, the Holy Spirit 
works through our lives and through our witness to convict the world and to lead them to the Savior. He uses our life and our words. Our role as Christ followers is to live godly lives and to bear witness to Jesus. It is the role of the Holy Spirit to bring about conviction that leads to salvation. And that's probably a good point for us to keep in mind. Because I know, I I think it's human nature for all of us to want to play the Holy Spirit in other people's lives. We want to be the one that brings the conviction. But that's not our job. That's the Holy Spirit's job. So what does he convict the world of? Well, Jesus tells us. First thing he says, it's sin. To convict the world of sin. Now, I almost, I was, I was sad as I was preparing my message today because I had to stop and I had to think, you know, I can't even, I can't assume that people understand what sin is. Not anymore. You know, 30 years ago maybe, 50 years ago, I think everybody had a general idea of what sin was today. Not so much. And so... There's no real easy answer to um, when you dig into Scripture, um, you find out sin is a much bigger thing, much more complex thing than you ever really thought. But I I will try to uh, define it for you or at least describe it for you. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. It is rebellion against God. It is transgressing the law of God. It is falling short of the glory of God in his will for our lives. St. Augustine said this. He said, sin is a word, deed, or desire in opposition to the eternal law of God. I used to help kids understand what sin is by simply saying, sin is anything that you think, say, or do that makes God unhappy. That's not a bad definition. It's, it's not all there is. There's a lot more to it than that, but hopefully you get the idea. So, but what specific sin is the Holy Spirit convicting the world of? Because I think there is a specific sin he's convicting the world of because the Holy Spirit isn't needed to convict us on other sins. You say, whoa, what do you mean? I was convicted long before I became a Christian. See, before I was saved and received the Holy Spirit, um, I knew that I was a sinner. Well, how did you know you were a sinner? Well, God gave me a conscience to begin with, a built-in sense of, of right and wrong. All I had to do was look up and see the stars or the mountains or the oceans, and I knew that there had to be a creator God. Somebody to whom I was responsible to. My parents put me in parochial school where I learned things about God. God's laws, which in the church that I grew up with, you know, I mean, that's kind of all you heard about was God's commandments and God's laws and woe to you when you disobey. But that coupled with my conscience convicted me of sin. It convicted me that I was not living the life that I should have been living. But it took the work of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God 
and the witness of Christians to expose my real problem, which was unbelief. You say, well, how can that be? You, you went to church, you, you learned things about God. Yeah, I, I, I believed in an intellectual way certain truths about Scripture, but I didn't believe in a biblical way. And only the Holy Spirit could reveal my unbelief is sin. Only he could point out and show me that that sin above all others was a damning sin. I mean, all sin will, you know, the scripture makes it clear that if you break one part of the law, you're guilty of the whole thing. Adam sinned once and he was kicked out of the garden. That's all that it takes. But unbelief is a special kind of sin. And only the Holy Spirit can convince somebody that it is sin. And only the Holy Spirit can convince somebody that Jesus really is the Son of God, that he really died on the cross, and that he rose from the dead. I mean, we can have conversations with people. We can present the evidence to them, right? But they can still remain in unbelief. Only the Holy Spirit can take away the veil. Only the Holy Spirit can help connect the dots so that people say, yes, I believe. So he convicts the world of sin. But I think specifically here, Jesus is referring to the sin of unbelief. The second thing that he will convict the world of is righteousness. He doesn't say unrighteousness, but he says righteousness. So I think he's putting a little spin on this because the religious leaders who sought to put Jesus to death saw themselves as righteous. And they saw Jesus as unrighteous. That's why they sought to kill him. And of course, there's a scripture that says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus was regarded as unrighteous, yet the truth is he was the, the only truly righteous person who's ever walked the face of the earth. And what we saw was that God's righteousness was demonstrated and displayed on the cross. His holiness, which demanded that sin be dealt with. His righteousness required a, a payment for sin. So by going to the cross, God's righteousness was displayed. God didn't just pass over sins. He just said, all right, you guys, I know you tried your best. Come on in. No, sin had to be dealt with. It had to be paid for. And not only was it displayed and demonstrated on the cross, but his resurrection and his ascension vindicated Jesus as God's righteous servant. And so the Holy Spirit, one of his purposes in coming is to convict the world of righteousness, of true righteousness, that Jesus is their rightful and righteous king. The third thing he says here is that he will convict the world concerning judgment. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, Satan was defeated. Death and the devil were defeated. Now, Satan is still the prince of this world, but, but know this, he's been defeated. We're just waiting for the sentence to be executed. But it's coming. It will be executed. The judgment of Satan 
at the cross when Jesus defeated him is a guarantee that everyone who does not repent and trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior will face the same judgment that awaits him. So one purpose here of the Spirit's coming then is to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And God does that through us. Now, he doesn't need us to be the Holy Spirit. We have a Holy Spirit. But we do have to bear witness to Christ. We have to live godly lives in order for the Holy Spirit to use us to do this. And this brings me to another purpose that we have here in our text in verses 12 and 13, and that is he was sent to guide the saints. Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Holy Spirit will guide us into all the truth. And that little three-letter word there before truth is important. It's the definite article. And it indicates specificity. The Spirit does not reveal all truth to us. He doesn't reveal to us all, you know, uh, astronomical truth, all biological truth. He, do, he doesn't reveal all truth to us. He reveals all the truth to us. He guides us into all the truth. And that is the truth that is in Jesus and revealed in God's Word. The word guide there means to lead or to show the way, to guide someone or some, something, someone to someone or to something. The word actually is used only one other time by John in all of his writings. And it's found in Revelation chapter 7, verse 17. And here John writes about Jesus and he says, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. So when you think about that, and then you kind of almost superimpose it to what John is saying here in John 16, I think the picture that we get is of the Holy Spirit guiding believers to springs of truth, just as Jesus guides his sheep to springs of living water. And this idea of, of being guided or led assumes we're following. And it assumes that it's an ongoing process. That it's not a one and done sort of thing. It's not a one-time data dump. You know, that the Holy Spirit just kind of like plugs into the back of our brains and pours in God's truth. That's not how it happens. He guides us. He leads us into all the truth. It's, it speaks of, of a cooperation, if you would, or a participation between us and the Holy Spirit. 
Um, but, but not only does the Holy Spirit not plug into the back of our brains and pour truth into us, he doesn't bypass our brains either. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 26. Jesus said, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And we talked about this. The Holy Spirit cannot bring to our remembrance the things that Jesus has said if we've not heard of them, if we're not familiar with what he said we must first know God's word if we're to understand God's word. We must engage our brains as well as our hearts in the study of scripture. Once we know what it says, then the Holy Spirit can help us understand what it means and how to apply it to our lives. So being guided by the Holy Spirit into all truth involves coming to an understanding of what God wants us to know and believe. But it's not just about the mere acquisition of knowledge either. Being guided by the Spirit means that we apply what we learn to our lives. We take what we are, the truths that we are led to understand, and we are shown how to apply it to our lives. That's part of the guiding ministry of the Holy Spirit. And if he's to do that, we must be willing to be led. We must surrender to him. We must yield ourselves to his leading. If he is truly our guide, then we must follow his lead. The third purpose that Jesus gives us about the coming of the Spirit is found in verses 14 through 15, and that is to glorify Jesus. Look at verse 14. He says, he will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Just as Jesus, when he came to earth, came to bring glory to the Father, the Holy Spirit, when he came to earth, he came with the sole purpose of bringing glory to Jesus. That is his primary role and purpose His ministry is to magnify the person and work of Jesus. It's not to draw attention to himself. The Holy Spirit doesn't want the spotlight. And we talked about this a few weeks ago as well. He didn't come to proclaim a message of his own. He came to proclaim the message that Jesus had preached, that he had proclaimed. That's why Jesus says, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The primary work of the Holy Spirit is to take what Jesus said and to make much out of it, to magnify him, to lift him up. So what's the purpose in the Spirit's coming? It's to convict. It's to guide. And it's to glorify Christ. But why is this so important for us to understand? 
It's because we cannot live the Christian life and fulfill the mission that Jesus has given to us without the help of the Holy Spirit. We can't. We need the Spirit's help. It's a sad commentary today that so many Christians never experience the wonderful presence and power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Francis Chan, in his book, Forgotten God, kind of tells you what he's talking about, said this. He said, the Holy Spirit is tragically neglected and for all practical purposes, forgotten. While no evangelical would deny his existence, I'm willing to bet that there are millions of churchgoers across America who cannot confidently say that they have experienced his presence or action in their lives over the past year. And many of them do not believe they can. Maybe you're one of these people. Maybe you haven't experienced the Spirit's presence or power because your faith has not required either of them. Let me, let me try and illustrate this. Now, I, I want to contrast what we can do with and without the Holy Spirit. And I've got to give credit to where credit's due. I got this idea from one of my commentaries. Uh, the material is all mine. Without the Spirit's help, you can get up, get dressed, and be in service each week. Without the Spirit's help, you can join a life group or a D group. Without the Spirit's help, you can read your Bible, pray, and sing worship songs. Without the Spirit's help, you can give money and even serve in the church. Without the Spirit's help, you can love those who love you. Without the Spirit's help, you can tell others about Jesus. My wife has an interesting story how, and she even has a picture of her witnessing to another girl when she was like 11 before she knew the Lord. You can do that. Without the Spirit's help, you can grow a big church without the Spirit's help. But do you know what you can't do without the Spirit's help? Without the Spirit's help, you can't truly worship. Without the Spirit's help, you can't fulfill the one another commands in Scripture. Without the Spirit's help, you can't grow in your relationship with Christ. Without the Spirit's help, you can't give sacrificially and generously. Without the Spirit's help, you can't love someone who hates you. Without the Spirit's help, you can't disciple someone else. And without the Spirit's help, you can't grow a deep church. Do you see the difference? And do you see how easy it is for operate in that first bunch of things that I mentioned? We can think the Spirit's involved in all of those things. And and all those things are good things. We ought to be in service. We ought to be in a life group and in a D group. We ought to be serving and, and telling people about Jesus. But we can do it all without the power of the Holy Spirit. 
But we can't do any of those other things without him. To live the Christian life and to fulfill the mission that Jesus has given us, we need the Holy Spirit. Now, it may be that you're here this morning or watching online and, and you have, you're not yet a follower of Christ. I trust that the Holy Spirit has used God's word this morning to convict you. To convict you of sin, of righteousness, of judgment, so that you might see Christ and all his beauty. That you might want to surrender your life to him this morning. The Holy Spirit can draw you to, to Christ this morning if you'll open up your heart. If you will admit and confess that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. You can go to the Lord in prayer before I even finish this sermon and say, Lord God, save me. Jesus, save me from my sin. Come into my life. Be my Lord and be my Savior. You know, I think Tozer was right. But let it not be said of us that if the Holy Spirit was taken away from our church, that 95% of what we do would continue. Let's allow him to guide us, to empower us, to bear witness about Jesus, and may he glorify Christ in and through our lives. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for your word to us. Lord, I thank you for the Holy Spirit that you have sent to us that we might... Um, be effective in, in ministry, that we might know you better, that we might love you more, that you might be pleased with us. And so, Father, would you reveal to each and every heart that are hearing these, these words this morning, Lord, whether or not um, they are walking in your power, in your strength and not their own. And Lord, I pray that you would cause us to, to trust you more, to, to lean into you and to believe you to do that which only you can do. And Lord, we confess that we love you and that we desire to walk with you, to be obedient to you so that you may be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.